Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast between four friends, four theologians from four countries on three continents. My name is James Eglinton. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm joined today by my regular co-hosts, Marinus de Jong of the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute in Kampen Utrecht, and also pastor of the Osterparkkerk in Amsterdam, um, and also by my regular co-host, Grace Utanto, who teaches theology at, who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. He's a native of Indonesia. We're not joined this week by our other regular co-host, Corey Brock, um, who's one of the pastors of St. Columbus Free Church in Edinburgh. But we are joined this week by a guest, um, David Koizis, um, a scholar of political um, theology. And um, he's joining us today for a conversation around neo-Calvinism as it relates to uh, politics and theology. Thank you for joining us. Um, you're very welcome. I'm glad that you'd be here. Great. Well, thank you very much, David, for joining us. So you you will be well known to, I guess, uh, some of our listeners as the author of Political Visions and Illusions, which is a really influential book um, translated into various languages. It's a, it's a bit of a classic text um, in thinking through um, politics um, uh, and uh, society from a neo-Calvinist perspective. Um, but we were particularly keen to have you on the show today to talk with you about um, a chapter that you've written for the TNT Clark Handbook of Neo-Calvinism, edited by Corey and Gray. And so the three of us um, on the podcast today have have read the chapter. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was it was fabulous, really helpful and insightful. Um, it generated a lot of questions for me. Um, so I'm quite excited that we have the chance to talk with you about it. Um, maybe to begin, I, I'd like to give you two um, two examples of ways of thinking about, um, let's say, politics as it relates to the rest of life. And they seem to clash a little bit, but instinctively, I want to be able to affirm both of them. So maybe you could help me either realize what's wrong in my thinking with wanting to affirm both of these examples or, or show us how to reconcile them. Um, so example one is from David Brooks, the New York Times columnist. Um, he won the Kuiper Prize two or three years ago and gave a really superb um, lecture as the Kuiper Prize winner. And one of the things that he mentioned in the lecture was that when he began his career as a journalist a few decades before, um, he worked in, in, in newsrooms without ever actually knowing um, which political party most of his colleagues voted for. And politics just didn't seem to be as as explicitly prominent as de and as divisive as, as it has become. And, and um, over those decades. And he, what he was pushing back against was um, that politics now is has, there's a huge overreach, you know, um, political camps and divisions um, filter into absolutely everything. And, um, you know, I could give an example of this uh, as well, tracking in the same decades, although I'm a bit younger than David. Uh, so when I was an undergrad student 20 years ago, I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you which parties any of my flatmates ever voted for. And we were all you know, young intellectuals and discussed all kinds of big ideas, but um, it just wasn't a feature. Um, whereas now, when I look at undergrad students at my university, um, a lot of the time when you see them looking for flatmates, Mates, they actually specify 
that they don't want to share a flat or an apartment with um, people who vote for a, like specific parties. So politics is everywhere, and that's what he was uh, David was pushing back against, using sphere sovereignty, and hence why it was a very fitting Kuiper lecture to say this is an intrusion of the sovereignty of all these other spheres when politics becomes everything. Okay, so that's one uh, one example, but the other example is an ad campaign that ran in Scotland. Uh, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. And it was a kind of public um, campaign to help get people, ordinary people, more engaged in politics. And it was a radio campaign. And it would begin with someone saying, you know, I'm, I don't really do politics. I'm not interested in it. When someone wanted to talk about, um, you know, what are you gonna, who are you going to vote for in the election? And then the guy said, I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about, um, you know, why petrol is so expensive. Oh, but that's politics. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about, um, you know, sectarian violence in football in Scotland. Oh, but that's politics. And the point of the of the ad was to show that politics really is everywhere. And, um, and that if you try and, you know, just put it into a, a pretty re reduced box, um, then that kind of limiting limited view of politics kind of limits your participation in society so i i really something in me wants to affirm both um david brooks desire to put politics back in a box um but also that ad campaign's desire to say if it's if it's just in a box then there's something problematic about society actually and there's something empowering about letting politics spread a bit more broadly than that um so help help me out with this one yeah, well, I think I think both are true, um, and that uh, throughout so much of life, I think you're going to find that that there are um, various principles that seem to be in tension with each other in someone, but yet both are true in some fashion. So um, yeah, I, I think um, you know the price of petrol. Yes, you know that that politics, it's politics. Uh, you know, it's not precisely politics, but politics is certainly going to influence the price of petrol or or gas, as we say in North America. Uh, you know, it's it's true if there's if there's violence, uh, Americans are going through a series of mass shootings that seem to happen far too often, and um, you know that that is an issue that needs to be dealt with politically, if you will. At the same time, there's a sense in which in which you don't want to um, form your friendships and your other relationships and your uh, you know your your market exchanges around politics, uh, because in, in in that respect, it become become it can become too intrusive. You know, I have I personally have friends who are uh, would disagree with me politically, and that's okay. That doesn't matter to me. I love them anyway, and and. Um, that's not going to stand in the way of our friendship. And if I allow it to stand in the way of our friendship, then I think that something is, is really amiss there. So, you know, politics has its place. Um, it's going to be influential throughout the whole of life, but it certainly is not everything, and it, and it should not be treated as though it is everything. Yeah, just to plug in from my perspective as a pastor um, in this discussion, I also, I'm, so I'm, I am from a New Calvinist tradition, right? My, from a New Calvinist church in the Netherlands. Um, where it was very natural to have a political party that is more or less aligned with the church. Uh, so uh, it wasn't the anti-revolutionary party in my case because we're from a split-off church, but we had our own political party. And so it would be natural to pray for that particular political party in church. You could only be a member of that political party when you were a member of the church uh, that I'm in. This is all the past, right? It's, it's not. It's not like that anymore. Uh, nowadays, I feel that we're moving kind of in a different direct direction. Where 
I feel that I certainly cannot pray for a certain party in the church. That would be that would be very problematic uh, because I have people from all different kinds of political parties. Um, so, yeah, I guess both are maybe extremes of an end to connect to what you say, that politics should not be like uh, in everything. But I also feel that, and I, I think we've discussed this before, I also feel that I cannot um, leave it out of my prayers, politics, right? If I say, no, no, prayers is not political, that that's... That's not true. Prayer is very political. Um, so, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of the same balance, I think, uh, that we need to be able to have people voting for different parties within a church, but at the same time, it's not eschewing um, politics in sermons and prayers. Oh, I think that's right. And, and I address that issue to some degree in the, in the, um, the uh, concluding ecclesiological postscript in the second edition of Political Visions and Illusions, which was published in um, 2019. Uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, throughout most of the book, I deal with the church as the body of Christ. You know, how do we, as the body of Christ, how do we approach political life? And I think, um, <clears throat> I think that's, that's a, a very significant question. But there is also a related question. How does the church as a specific gathered institution uh, interface with political life? And I think that's, it's a related question, but it's not the same question. So in, in that, I try to deal with, well, how does, um, um, how, how, how does the church as a specific differentiated institution uh, address political issues or issues of justice? And in that, uh, uh, in that postscript, I, I, I believe, I, I argue that the church ought not to be making pronouncements on specific policy issues, but it ought to be uh, uh, educating its members to, to seek justice. And there, there is ample, um, there is ample uh, material in the scriptures that would en enable us to do that. So, for example, uh, the church, I don't believe, and pastors should not be preaching about what is the proper uh, mandated uh, minimum wage, for example, or or or, or how we might uh, resolve the Israel-Palestine issue. Should it be a one-state or a two-state solution? Again, that's not something that the church as the gathered church community ought to be doing. But I think we ought to be teaching parishioners in the pews that uh, that justice, that doing justice is an important part of the Christian walk uh, before God. Yeah, that's that's definitely helpful, I think. And it I think it kind of is also how I do it, like trying to like not too directly, but certainly indirectly show how the gospel has many consequences for justice and for many other things. But but of course it's a there's a there's a gray area in between. Um I mean there's this risk that you become that you can never become concrete in your preaching or in your prayers at risk of becoming entangled in political issues, right? Well you also need to be concrete because otherwise, yeah, people are not going to make the truly make the connection between um, the gospel and their lives. And so, for example, um, climate change, refugees. Um, sometimes it feels almost that like praying for refugees in a country is is almost a political statement, right? It isn't, and I, that's not not how I intended. But when the climate is so po so polemical and polarized, um, it's it's difficult to navigate that. Yes, it is. There's, there's no doubt about that. 
Maybe we could just backtrack for a minute and maybe if some of the listeners don't know exactly yet who David is and maybe they've heard about the book, but they don't really know the context of the book. Maybe, David, tell us a bit more about yourself, how you got into the tradition of neo-Calvinism and why this particular trajectory of politics and faith. And then I would love to talk about just, just briefly on the Political Visions and Illusions book. Maybe we could start there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I've, I'm living in Canada now. I've lived in Canada most of my life, but I was actually born uh, in the United States, not far from the, across the street, really, from the city of Chicago. And that's where I grew up. The church that I grew in, grew up in, is, uh, is part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, there was a congregation that my parents started with another family um, in one of the Chicago suburbs. And, uh, and while it was not a neo-Calvinist church as such, uh, it was very close. And there were a lot of people with, with Dutch and Frisian surnames in the congregation where I, where I grew up. Um, we moved to another church when I was about 11 years old, but I think what I, what I uh, uh, learned in that church stayed with me for, for much longer than I had, had anticipated. So it was not until I was in university, I was going to university, this is in the... Oh, just um, just 50 years ago now, uh, going to to university at a at a Christian university in uh, Minnesota, and it was by no means neo-Calvinist, but I met a number of students who were taken with this neo-Calvinist vision of uh, of of all of life being redeemed uh, through through the work of Jesus Christ, and I was very much taken with that, and I think my childhood church experience prepared my heart for that. So it, I was influenced. Not by my professors, yes, but even more by this group of students that I came into contact with um, at this university. And so that, that really set the course of my life. Um, in terms of politics, uh, that was not something which I necessarily had anticipated uh, taking an interest in when I was younger. When I was younger, there were, there were, I had a variety of interests that were all over the map. So I was interested in the arts. I was drawing and painting when I, when I was a, a child up until, um, until early adulthood. I grew up in a very musical family. Uh, I still compose music, and I have an, an ongoing uh, uh, project that involves the, uh, the Genevan Psalter and another Psalter that I've been working on as, as well. So these are sort of side interests of mine. Um, I have an interest in foreign languages as well, so any one of these I could have pursued. But when I was, um, when I was coming of age, there were two events that really pushed me in the direction of politics. Uh, these were Watergate and the Turkish invasion of Cyprus, which um, happened in 1973-1974. Watergate, of course, uh, brought down the presidency of Richard Nixon, whom my family had supported uh, uh, um, uh, in 1973. 1960 and 1968, as a matter of fact, when he was running for the presidency. Uh, but Watergate was something that really um, got me thinking about, about political life, because here was a man occupying the highest office in the country of my birth, who was obviously uh, abusing his office uh, um, for, for political purposes and seemed to think that he was above the law in, uh, in, in undertaking uh, his efforts to secure re-election in 1972. Um, in 1974, uh, my father's native island of Cyprus, my father was born in, in Cyprus in 1928, and, uh, um, and he grew up speaking Greek, 
also Turkish and French and English, uh, a few other languages as well. But um, he was. Uh, uh, but all of my relatives in Cyprus, including my elderly grandparents at the time, became refugees in their own country. They were living in the north part of Cyprus when Turkey invaded. They had to leave their homes and became refugees in their own country. Um, some of my father's family coming to the United States after that point. Others going to Greece. Others to England, and so forth. And that really got me thinking as well. So those the conf the, the confluence of those two events really pushed me in the direction of studying politics. And so that's what I, I ended up pursuing as an undergraduate and as a graduate student as, as well. Fast forward, um, you know, I'm going to skip quite a bit. Um, I, I got my PhD at, at the University of Notre Dame in, um, in Indiana. And then um, after that point, I was, um, I was teaching at uh, Redeemer University College in, uh, um, here in Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. There was a course on the um, curriculum that I was charged with teaching. It was about political ideologies. And that was in 19, 1988. So in the run-up to the second term, 1988, uh, I was looking for books. This was before the internet, of course. We had these orange hardbound volumes called Books in Print. I went through them, was calling publishing companies and so forth, and trying to find a book that I thought did what needed to be done at a Christian university uh, uh, with students studying political ideologies. I could not find anything that did what I thought needed to be done in such a course. So I ended up teach, uh, ordering a book that, that, that covered the territory, as it were. But I ended up in that course doing something quite different. Um, at the end of the semester, I got um, from the student evaluations, I, I got students writing, well, I'm not sure why he had us reading this book since he didn't seem to refer to it very much. Uh, but I, I recognized that, that something needed to be done to fill a gap. So in 1994, I started writing uh, what would eventually become Political Visions and Illusions. It took me seven years to, to write the whole thing. Um, in the meantime, I got married, had a daughter, and um, you know my life changed quite considerably. At the end of 2001, I finished the book. In 2003, it was published by InterVarsity Press, and it became a steady seller at that point. And, and I used that book in this course. Um, I retired in 2017. Um, in 2018, I... Uh, no, I'm sorry, the end of 2017, I think it was, I persuaded InterVarsity Press to uh, um, uh, to allow me to work on a second edition, and that's that's exactly what I did. It was published in um, in 2019. Uh, 2020, it was endorsed by by Tim Keller, and I was very grateful for that. Over the next um, couple of years, he continued to endorse it. Most recently, in a video that he posted on YouTube in May of last year, and of course, as we all know, he. Um, uh, um, passed on a couple of months ago. I was very sorry to hear that uh, because I, I owe a, a profound debt of gratitude to the man. And, um, and the book has sold very well um, since his endorsement. It's, it's a fabulous book. I mean, it's, it's something that I assign as well here for a class in uh, Christ, Culture, and Contextualization. Yeah. And when I travel to other campuses, whether I'm teaching on philosophy or Christian thought and the relationship to philosophy or apologetics, I would still assign that as well. It's just a wonderful work. And in there you try it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, very I'm much. very, very happy to, to read it, especially having the second edition. It's so useful and it's so accessible now. Um, right. and, and in the book, you just cover all these different um, political visions and democracy, 
socialism, um, um, uh, Roman Catholic social thought, and also finally the neo-Calvinist tradition as well in there. And, and in all of these different political visions, you actually show that they're not just a political option, they actually disclose their own creation, fall, redemption, consummation narrative. And so they actually capture people as an illusion, That's as right. an ideology, that is an alternative to a biblically informed faith. Um, maybe two, two, a two-pronged question here. Um, one, could you give me an example of that? Maybe an example from capitalism or democracy or socialism, something that people would have been interested in about. And secondly, I think people are tempted to say, well, the Christian faith is just closer to one of these options. Isn't capitalism or isn't um, constitutionalism, isn't liberalism, right, more closely allied to Christianity than socialism? Are we really, are we, are we posing them as equal options, if that makes sense? And are they all equally dangerous and equally, therefore, not attractive? Um, maybe address those two things if you can. Yeah. yeah, well, let me start with the last one. I don't, I don't think they are all equally dangerous, you know. Um, I, I think the, all of them in some way, this is one of the, the changes from the first to the second edition of, of this book. In the first edition, I treated the ideologies as um, subsets of the larger category of idolatry. Uh, you know, that something is being taken out of the larger context of God's creation and too much is being made of it. Uh, you know, for liberalism, it's, um, it's individual freedom or the rights of the individual. And in liberalism, that takes precedence over virtually everything else, over other legitimate considerations. Uh, you know, but in the second edition, I talk about the stories that are underpinning these various ideologies. So it's, it's probably more obvious in Marxism than any other ideology. You know, for, for Marx, there's a stage that's called primitive communism, as it were. You know, it might be comparable to the, um, to the Garden of Eden in, uh, in, in, in the scriptures. Uh, the fall into sin in, in Marx, it's the, the first division of labor, as it were. Class struggle then um, occurs over, over many generations. And finally, you have this messianic proletariat, the industrial working class, that brings in the classless society, which is the counterpart to the final consummation of the kingdom of God, as we see it in the, in the Bible. You know, that's in Marx, it's, it's obvious. In the other ideologies, it's not quite as obvious, but it's there, and that's what I'm trying to do in, um, in the second edition of Political Visions and Illusions, to show this flow, this narrative flow for liberalism, it has to do with the attainment of freedom. You know, it may be, it may be a continual expansion of, of human autonomy, such that, um, that, that everything has to take a back seat, and there's a, a kind of historical trajectory that's pushing us in the direction of greater and greater degrees of autonomy. Um, in nationalism, it may be national liberation. There's a kind of story of the nation. Uh, you know, if you go to Serbia, for example, there's uh, every Serb knows about the Battle of, uh, of Kosovo Polje, which took place in 1389 when the Ottoman Turks uh, defeated Serbia um, on the battlefield. And, uh, and then centuries of Turkish control. And then in the 19th century comes liberation of Serbia from the, uh, the Ottoman uh, yoke. And, that, uh, and that's still motivating Serbs. Uh, the Greeks have their own version of this, Russians as well. Um, you know, so nationalism is part of this. But that, that, that historical trajectory that's moving us towards a kind of this worldly salvation. 
And I think that's, that is what is underpinning the various ideological visions that I deal with in political visions and illusions. Yeah, I, I think that's an important thing to, to pick out because I've heard now, at least in recent days, you know, there's a kind of push towards a return to Christendom, theocracy, and we could talk about your handbook chapter here in relation to that because you addressed those questions there. But in those, that, that recent surge of post-liberal search for a new Christendom, I would say, it's, um, they're pushing back against neo-Calvinism because it seems to them that despite our critiques of these different political theories, we're still presupposing some kind of liberalism. We're still presupposing constitutional democracy as the framework that is what we should be, what we should be working with, if that makes sense. And anyway, I, I wonder what you would think. We're, yeah. The, yeah, that's right. And I, and I think this is where I think we need to make some distinctions, which a lot of people don't make. So, you know, liberalism is a particular ideological vision. But then there's this word that people bandy about rather too frequently, liberal democracy. You know, so, so in, in that respect, we're talking about a particular structure that is in place. We're talking about, about constitutional government. We're talking about political institutions. Uh, and the arrangement that is prescribed in a particular constitutional document. Now, not, a, not every country, most countries have a constitutional document. Uh, most countries, I venture to say, are, are, um, do not live up to those, their constitutional documents. There are some countries li like Great Britain and New Zealand, um, nine of the ten Canadian provinces that, that do not have written constitutions, but nevertheless they have constitutional government because uh, the actors in the political arena recognize that there are limits to, um, that they are limited by the rule, the rule of law. Uh, so, you know, if you want to call it liberal democracy, you can, but that is not the same as a particular vision that tries to reduce all communities to mere voluntary associations. Now, that, that latter point, that is what liberalism as an ideology is all about. So, you know, um, Catholic integralists that want to try to bring about a new Christendom. You know, I, I love reading them. You know, they're, they're very interesting. They have very um, trenchant critiques of, of liberalism as an ideology. But if they start to conflate that with the institutions of constitutional government, then, um, then that's a conflation which is not warranted. Uh, you know, we have to, I think it was, um, uh, maybe it was um, Herman Bavink, I don't know, James would be able to t tell me that, who makes this distinction between structure and direction. You know, the spiritual direction that we impose on something as opposed to the structures of reality that are a given and that we have to work with. Uh, in political life, there are given structures. Christians live in a variety of earthly polities and they're all governed differently. Um, I grew up in a constitutional republic. Right now, I'm living in a constitutional monarchy uh, with quite distinctive political institutions that are, are similar to those of the United Kingdom, but they're also similar to the United States, especially with respect to the federal division of powers. Uh, you know, and, and Christians trying to work politically um, have to take into account the differences on the ground between their different political systems. Does that mean that we're giving in to a particular ideological vision? No. It simply means that, that we need to know where we are. We need to know the context in which we are working. We need to take, take that seriously and try to, to live out the kingdom, not to try to bring about the kingdom because that's not something that's given to us, but to live out the kingdom uh, politically, but not just politically, 
um, in terms of family life, in terms of, 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 of business, in terms of, of labor unions, in terms of the arts, uh, the sciences, and so forth. And that's something that, that, um, that we are responsible for living out the kingdom in, in, in all of those areas of life. Yeah, thank you. That's a, I think that's a helpful distinction um, to make because, yeah, indeed, I think that that is that is conflated a lot, and it's it's not very helpful. Let, let me ask a question that plays into that a little bit. Um, so, in reading uh, your chapter for the handbook we we just talked about, um, I was struck by this one line you said. Um, so, the new Calvinist political vision is that we understand that we are part of a plural society. Um, so we, we are, we have, we are not like a dominant or we don't have like theocratic aspirations. We're just part of, um, part of a larger whole and, and understand we have to live together. Um, on the other end, there is this deep conviction that this, this pluralism does not imply a relativism. Um, right, and I think this is the the, the fear of the of those, those people Gray was talking about that this this necessarily ends up in relativism, and there that's why they want to have this this like um, post Christian non post liberal um, critique and saying, well, maybe we need to go back to uh, this, these more theocratic like visions, although different, but in this, in the same line. Um, and also, you said that that he also in the new governance vision. I agree with you. We keep saying, despite being pluralistic, that this is not just our story, but this is the world's story. I thought I thought that was a great line you used in your thing. This this is yes. this, the, the Christian story is the, is the story of the world. So this this means I think, and I, I would love to hear you about that. There is this kind of inherent tension between, um, well, if you, if you frame it differently, how can we, how can you be pluralistic and not relativistic, right? How do you how do you walk that line? I guess that that's right. where my question comes down to. Yes. Well, if we recognize that that plur pluralism is a reality on the ground that we need to deal with, okay, that that's where we recognize that people have different ultimate convictions. Uh, you know, in Canada, we have Christians, uh, maybe far fewer than we used to um, three quarters of a century ago, perhaps. Uh, we also have um, secularists. We have uh, we have Muslims. We have Buddhists, and so forth. Uh, we have Jews. Uh, you know that that's simply the reality on on the ground. Uh, to say that um, uh, that it is good that there should be different religious groups. Okay, that would be going too far, I think, for the Christian, because I think Christians would want to see um, uh, everyone benefit from salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, but that's not a political matter. You know, we're not we're not going to try to um, how should we say to convert our societies from the top down? And I think that's where it, perhaps the people who want to try to revive a Christendom, uh, you know, it may be that they're that they're going that they're going um, um, astray on that particular issue, because I think what that means is that you know it would be wonderful if everybody in our societies were believing Christians. Because we could do so much, it would, there would be amazing things that we could do in terms of trying to reform our um, um, maybe the welfare state uh, 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 to, to enable uh, the, the the poor to have the resources that they, that they need. Uh, you know, I think of a time when here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, you know, virtually every neighborhood had 
a church, you know, different denominations. Virtually every neighborhood had an Anglican church, uh, a Presbyterian church, a United Church, a Catholic church. And those were, were, were foci of the local community. And if people had need, they could go to those churches um, for, uh, for, for sustenance. And, and that was a kind of uh, a way of, of ensuring that, um, uh, that people were taken care of. You know, we don't have that anymore. I wish we did, but we can't, we can't go back. Uh, you know, you can't turn back, you can't, you can't turn back the clock. Uh, but at the same time, I think if we, if, we, if we want to have a Christian society, we, don't, we can't do it from the top down. We have to work from the bottom up. Uh, we have to preach the gospel. We have to try to invigorate our churches in the best, that we, best way that we can. We need to point out the flaws in the ideologies that people are following in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and, 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 and elsewhere, in the, in the Netherlands, and the like. And that, that's something that must occur over the, long, over the long haul. So, you know, pluralism is not to say that all truth is relative. It's not to say that everybody has their own truth. You know, oh, well, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe that the gospel is true for me, but, you know, you're a Muslim and, and, uh, and, and that's true for you. No, I don't believe that we need to, to go in that direction. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that we, w that we should. I don't believe that we can. Because uh, even though we live in a pluralistic society, we are still a witness for the gospel. And that witness will take place on the political level, yes. It will take place with respect to families. It will take place um, uh, 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 certainly in our, in our church congregations as well. So I got a question there, David, and I'm trying to put myself into someone who's been you know, working through these, this, these ideas of post-liberalism. You have distinguished for us there the structure of a constitutional liberal society on the one hand versus the direction of liberalism, right? And you say that we have to be working with what we've been given with and that we live in a plural society and we want, therefore, a kind of principal pluralism, right? Um, but that's not a kind of relativism. But what would you do if you are happening to be a Christian? You've been regenerated, you have faith in Christ Jesus, and now you, ha you are put in a position of political power. You have authority right now. Doesn't the faith leaven your um, worldview at that point such that you would now want... A more Christianized society, and isn't isn't what we're saying here because of common grace and antithesis and our present redemptive historical period. We're not advancing the kingdom; we're witnessing to the kingdom. Doesn't that actually implicate that you would want a more democratic society as a Christian, and therefore, aren't you baptizing once again the the that not just the structure, but the the direction of democratic liberalism? Um, I I don't know what. What do you mean by the direction of democratic liberalism? So, sorry, pack that a bit? let me put it another way. Isn't isn't the okay. aren't we saying that the neo Calvinism the neo Calvinist position actually implies that you would be for not theocracy but for a more plural society? Let's just put it that way. And isn't that already endorsing one kind of political theory as a Christian? If you are a Christian who happens to be in power, because you're not just working with, you're not just a Christian who's who's indifferent to, to, to society out there, and you're just happening to find yourself in it. If you are actually put in a position of power, what would you do? Yeah, and and to say that that neo-Calvinism favors a plural society in that sense, I don't think would be entirely accurate. 
Um, in, in, in my book, you may, you may remember I have a discussion of different kinds of pluralism, and this takes some, this uh, borrows on the work of, of Richard Mao and Sandra Griffune. Um, they wrote a book in the 80s and 90s, I think it was, called The uh, uh, Pluralisms and Horizons. And the days, they distinguish uh, among three different kinds of pluralism. So on the one hand, you have this kind of spiritual or directional pluralism, it's just the reality on the ground that people have different ultimate commitments. And then there's a contextual pluralism, pluralism or what we might call cultural pluralism. And then there's this, um, what they call associational pluralism. I don't like that term myself. I, I would use the term the pluriformity of society, societal pluriformity, or, or the pluriformity of authorities. And I think that's the, the principal pluralism that neo-Calvinists favor is that third type of pluralism. You know, the, the, the reality that there are a variety of communities of social formations in which we are embedded. And I think that's the primary meaning behind principal pluralism. That first kind of pluralism that, um, uh, that people have different ultimate beliefs is something that we are, I don't want to say that we are exactly witnessing against it, but I, I will say that, that we are witnesses for the truth. People interpret the truth in different ways, we recognize that, that maybe they have insights that we do not. So we're, we maintain an attitude of humility towards people with different ultimate beliefs. You know, except through God's common grace, we recognize that, that liberals may have insights, that, um, that socialists may have insights that we have missed. We, we learn from each other. At the same time, we are witnesses uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which once again is the world story. And if neo-Calvinists uh, forget that, uh, if, if we become too enamored of this first kind of pluralism, the, the pluralism of different beliefs, then it may be that we are moving towards uh, um, uh, a, a negative kind of compromise. So we recognize this plurality of different beliefs, but we also witness to the gospel, recognizing that the biblical story is the world story. So in other words, then, as we're trying to persuade others from the bottom up, as you say, and if society actually becomes more Christian in light of yeah. God's work and regenerating people's hearts, we would actually embrace that sort of Christian society. Yeah. We're not actually going to just tether ourselves to the first sort of pluralism. And I think, again, I'm just, I'm just anticipating no, we want objections. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's we right. want to see yeah. a Christian society. You know, we want to see a Christian society. It won't be the same as the old Christendom. You know, I don't. We can't. We can't bring back models from the past. But as a matter of fact, um, um, you know, throughout throughout most of the world, the uh, the growth in the church is outstripping the population growth. Uh, you know, the United Kingdom, Canada, um, the United States are are are. Um, um, are uh, outliers with respect to that because the the growth in the church is not being it's being outstripped by the population growth uh, sad to say but in most of the world the vast majority of the world that's not the case so in many respects i have a great deal of hope i have a lot of connections with brazil um, the first language that that my book was translated into was portuguese back in in 2014 the um, um the second edition uh, came out in Portuguese uh, in um, in 20, um, 2021, uh, two years ago now. You know, I have a, a lot of hope for the people of Brazil. The, the the gospel is spreading like wildfire in that country and in other countries as well. And, and you know, I think, you know, we can become discouraged here in um, in uh, in North America and uh, and in the United Kingdom uh, and, and perhaps in the Netherlands as well. But as a matter of fact, the gospel is growing.
I have a question about common grace. Um, so this it came up a few moments, about well, a few minutes ago in the conversation. Um, so in in the chapter you, you in the handbook you talk about common grace. Um, you cite the words of Christ from Matthew five. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And in the chapter you draw out how important common grace is for ways to think about um, how we deal with that plurality. And it's uh, a foundation in I think a lot of the stuff that you were just saying about a humble posture towards people with different insights, whilst not becoming a relativist. Um, Earlier on, you mentioned Tim Keller and, and your indebtedness to him. And um, you know, the, the, this part of the chapter made me think about a lecture that Tim Keller gave once on modern identities. And the lecture is really just the summary of Charles Taylor's book, Sources of the Self. But I think it's an absolutely superb summary of that book. And one of the points that Taylor, and then channeled by um, Tim, makes is that um, in modern Western cultures... Um, and identity formation, you become who you are by demonizing someone else. So the, the modern notion of the self, which is uh, self-performative, you know, self-authenticating, and so on, it actually requires you to have a nemesis. And you see this all throughout politics as well and how it works in secularized Western contexts. Um, so my question is really about how common grace could help Christians who work in politics where it's a politics that, that just exudes that kind of, you know, you, you are who you are because you've demonized someone else. So uh, I have a friend who works in politics um, who is a Christian, and I guess a big thing that, that he finds challenging in, in his job is that his party's whole political apparatus really depends on the demonization of another party. Another party that they demonize require, you know, needs to do the same thing back to them. And, um, but, you know, if you really believe in common grace and, and a kind of political vision like you've just um, sketched out, it's kind of, it goes, seems to go against what you're meant to do in your job to say, hey, that, that other party made a really great point here, or we can validate things in what they do. That That's just, that doesn't seem to be the, like the rules of engagement anymore, which is really sad. But if you have this kind of theology, what would that look like uh, if you were to work in politics today? No, uh, that, that, that's very good. And I, I, I want to, I'm going to make a reference to the United States. I was born in that country. Uh, and I haven't lived there since 1987. And, and when I go back, it doesn't seem like the same country that I left behind. Um, you know, for a variety of things have happened since I left. Ronald Reagan was still in the White House when I, uh, when, when I left the United States. Uh, uh, you know, um, George, uh, George H.W. Bush, for whom I had, had a great deal of respect. Uh, um, and I know, I, I know some people who, um, who, who, who knew uh, that president as, as well. Uh, and, uh, but, but at the same time, as I, as I look at the United States and the way that it is right now, uh, the two parties are at each other's throats. You know, they're, they're, they are demonizing each other. You're, you're quite right, you know. And of course, if you're not, if you demonize the other party, then, then you can't cooperate with them because you don't want to collaborate with the devil. Uh, you know, there are certain politicians uh, in the Republican Party, admittedly, that have become, they're Christians and they're, they're quite enamored of Abraham Kuyper, but they've picked up the combative side of Kuyper and they, and they have completely ignored this notion of common grace. Now, to be honest, I think the electoral system has something to do with that, because with the exception of New Zealand, uh, English-speaking democracies have a, a first-past-the-post electoral system, or what we political scientists call the single-member plurality system. Uh, you know, the whole country is divided up into so many territorial constituencies. Each constituency um, elects one member to the parliamentary body. 
and uh, um, and of course that's going to distort representation in that parliamentary body. So uh, um, uh, you know the, the 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 liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom are are chronically underrepresented because their um, their um, their support base is too geographically diffuse. Um, that's the case in Canada as well. The New Democratic Party, that's our socialist party, if you will, in this, in this country. It's, it's, uh, it's chronically underrepresented, uh, except on rare occasions, but it's chronically underrepresented because its, it's support base is too, is too diffuse uh, throughout the country as a whole. Um, I would much prefer to see something like, uh, um, like a, a proportional representation. Probably not the same variety that they have in the Netherlands. I don't think that would be appropriate for a country the size of Canada or the United States or even the United Kingdom. But something that, that would prevent any single party from having a majority of seats in the parliament. That would force the parties to cooperate in coalition governments. Now, the United Kingdom did have a coalition government about about a dozen years ago, or so, with the uh, the Conservatives uh, and the uh, and and the Liberal Democrats. Uh, that's unusual. It doesn't usually happen in Canada. We regard that as almost un-Canadian. You know, we we never have coalition governments in Canada because we are. Um, I think we've adopted some of this American attitude. Um, sad to say, unfortunately, I think Canada has adopted some of the worst features of the American constitution and has has gotten rid of some of the best features of the British constitution unfortunately so with this uneasy combination of both but we haven't adopted the best features of the of the two constitutions sad to say but I think in 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 that kind of a context if we had to cooperate across partisan lines if the electoral system forced us to do that we would not be able to demonize other parties there's too much of that here in Canada it's even worse in the United States so, you know, and it's not going to solve problems, but I think it would, and it would encourage the type of cooperation that I think is necessary for, um, for political life. So in Scotland, I think we actually have, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a worse example of how to get both of these models wrong between <laughs> first past the post and um, having a list-based system because we elect our members of the Scottish Parliament using both systems. Right. So, um, so you let's say you have 100,000 people who are voting in a local area for their member of the Scottish Parliament, and 50,001 vote for a particular candidate. That person will get in, but let's say you know 48,000 vote for someone else who doesn't get in, and 2,000 vote for, I mean, it's usually the Green Party candidate, um, that kind of a system. So th then, so you'll have um, a huge chunk of people who's, um, like, whose votes just aren't represented then in Parliament. You'll, you could have a very slim majority whose votes are, but you'll have a really small group uh, often whose choice then also ends up in Parliament. And we have a coalition government at the moment um, where, so for example, you could have a, a Green Party politician, and again, their, their voter base is quite diffuse across the country, but you could have someone who gets you know, 1,200 votes and who's a you know, front bench government minister. Um, and that's immensely frustrating to a lot of people in the population. Um, so yeah, we've we've kind of fallen between the cracks of trying to have both systems, and uh, I don't think it works very well. I think I think the Germans have done a, a, a pretty good job with their electoral system. I don't want to get into too much detail 
um, in this podcast, but it's a way that combines the best features of the first-past-the-post system and, uh, um, and proportional representation, while also having a 5% threshold that the parties would need to, to cross in order to get um, any seats at all in the Bundestag. Uh, you know, Israel has a, a, a form of proportional representation, but a very low threshold, which enables extremist parties to get into the Knesset, which, um, um, well, I guess I could say that they gum up the works, as it were. Uh, you know, they, they, they make demands on the parties, that, on, on the government, that prevents them, um, how should we say, uh, that prevents them making peace with their neighbors and um, trying to come to, um, to terms with their, with their pal Arab-Palestinian population. So, you know, the um, uh, electoral systems uh, make a lot of difference in the, in the way that, that, the, um, that the political culture will come to be shaped over the long term. Yeah, for, for for me as a Dutchman, it's always funny to read um, neo-Calvinist accounts of yeah. politics because they kind of describe my system, which I have just known as the the, yeah. on, the only system because that's where I grew up in, right? So, the whole well, what you also wrote about in the article yeah. about uh, this this electoral system we've just been discussing, and the school system, the, yeah. these are just both in place in my country and work fairly well. Um, so, um, but we we also have a, a very low threshold none really um, mm -hmm. which has good sides but the problem is now that we have so many different parties it's so fragmented so we now need well, you just right, start right. talking with four parties um, so that is right. I mean that that is also complicated and as we speak as we are recording this podcast yeah. there is a, um, um, a cabinet crisis going on in the Netherlands again and it happens all the time and that's partly because there's four parties yeah, involved yeah. We who think very differently about a lot of topics. Um, and now they're trying right. to, uh, to, to, to get a migration, a new migration law um, passed, and they're probably not going to make it, and yeah. the, the government's probably going to go collapse. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not the perfect system either. We, we may need some more thresholds and stuff, but it, it, uh, oh. uh, yeah. but it, it, <laughs> it definitely has, has, its, has its, uh, its positive sides for sure. And having a, a, a good Christian representation right, in government right. is really one of the upsides of it, um, uh, which is, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it would, it would be a tough sell to Americans in particular. We have talked about it here in Canada. Um, our current prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, in 2015, when he was, when he was running the first time, uh, promised to... Um, institute some form of proportional representation. But I knew, even at that time, that as soon as he got into power, he was going to uh, go back on that promise. And that's exactly what happened. Because if a party um, has majority support, an artificial majority, because you know the majority of Canadians did not vote for the Liberal Party um, in Canada on the federal level, level, but nevertheless, because of the, the way that our electoral system works out, they end up getting most of the seats. Um, you know, d uh, right now uh, we have a minority government that's being propped up by the New Democrats, the Canada Socialist Party. Um, you know, that's fine. That that will work for a certain amount of time. Uh, but I, but honestly, I think that that anything that will allow cooperation across party lines will be a good thing. But of course, that can't. <coughs> you know, yeah. you're not going to satisfy everybody. 
you know, I, I don't think you, you want to have a huge number of parties that are part of the coalition government. Germany has, has made grand coalition governments work. You know, that's, that's oversized coalition governments work um, periodically. You know, in the 1960s, um, they made it work. Um, um, several years ago, they, they made it work as well, at least for a limited period of time. But I think there are ways to tweak the system that will, um, that will encourage cooperation. And honestly, I think for the Americans, I believe that their founders in the 18th century would probably have preferred, if they knew about it, a form of proportional representation because it would, it would prevent any single faction taking control of the government. Now, I think Madison would, would probably have jumped at the, um, James Madison would have jumped at, the, um, at, at some form of proportional representation if that had been a live option in the, in the, at the end of the 18th century. Before I became a theologian, I, I was a lawyer. I, I studied law for my undergrad oh, degree. Okay. And when we, when we were um, being taught jurisprudence, so this was at the University of Aberdeen back in the early 2000s, we were taught something that was actually very like sphere sovereignty. And I think it was just you know coincidental when we were taught about what constitutes good law and how to make good laws. So we were taught at that point that there are certain things that, that are, you can't really base good laws on notions like love, for example. So when you think of marriage and how this um, features in, in lawmaking for a very, very long time until quite recently, um, marriage wasn't legislated on the basis of love or romantic feelings, for example. It was very, you know, that it might have actually functioned like that in society and in other spheres of society. It might be talked about as that at a marriage ceremony where you, you know, you would have a minister or a priest or someone like that um, actually conducting your wedding. But from a legal point of view, it was very much a contractual, it was a set of obligations that you entered um, to another person and mutual obligations. Um, but in over the last couple of decades in, in the UK, for example, politicians all of a sudden have become very willing to legislate on the basis of love. And, and in the Scottish Parliament, um, particularly secular politicians talk about love all the time in, in Parliament. And, uh, um, I, I'm just curious to know what you think of that. I mean, the, the kind of, as I said, the legal basis that I was educated within was something that looked and sounded very like sphere sovereignty, that if you bring a notion like love in from other spheres of life and, and make this part of our lawmaking, that that's going to be a very difficult thing to, to enact good laws on the basis of. It depends on what you mean by love. You know, there, there's, I think love manifests mm -hmm. itself differently in different spheres of life. You know, so, so within the family, love means something. You know, I, I, in the morning I get up and I give my wife a kiss and I give my daughter a kiss. She has a summer job and she goes off before she goes off to that. You know, I'm, I'm constantly telling them both, oh, I love you. I love you so much, you know. And then I have, I have close friends that I tell them that I love them as, as well. And, but uh, the, the kind of love in, um, for example, in the classroom, you know, I, I loved to teach and I loved my students. But that didn't mean that I would come in the classroom and give each of them a hug and a kiss in, 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 uh, at, at the beginning of the class. You know, love in the classroom setting meant that I fulfilled the obligations that, um, that, that came with teaching them, you know, to live up to the terms of the syllabus and the course outline, uh, you know, to, to, to mark their papers and their tests and exams um, fairly. That, that's how love manifests itself within, within the classroom. In politics, love manifests itself in the doing of public justice within the context of a plural society, a, a differentiated society, a society characterized by what I would call, uh, call pluriformity. 
uh, you know, it's not sentiment. It's not a kind of sentimental love that should be brought into into the political realm. If that's what is meant by love, then I then I think that's a misfire. I think that's a I think that's a conflation of two uh, different meanings of love. If you're bringing mere sentiment into politics, um, I think that's 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 something that has its dangers. Mm. Yeah, thanks. That's helpful. And I guess I, sh I should have. Um <coughs> Um, prefix that with uh, the context from the chapter, which is when you're talking about um, public justice having implications in terms of the institutions of government, and and you even talk about Calvin in this regard, and you say that you quote Calvin that every nation is left free to make such laws as it foresees to be profitable for itself. Exactly. Yet these must be in conformity to that perpetual rule of love, so that they indeed vary in form yes. but have the same purpose. Exactly. Um, yes. So yeah, I find that a really provocative quote to read because I guess that, that kind of backdrop that I have over the last couple of decades of trying to think about love in relation to politics and law, for example, in, in my particular context. Yeah. So it's really helpful to think about love in, a, in that kind of pluriformity context there as well. I really yeah, appreciate I that. You just kind of inadvertently gave an apologetic against the slogan, love is love, right? Love is actually in accordance with nature. You don't love yeah. people oh, yeah. in accordance with just how you define love, but yeah. you actually have to love them according to what they are and yeah. the sphere in which you're in. Um, yeah. and, and also, I might, I might add to that, that, that there is yes. such a thing as misdirected love. That's something that Augustine understood, you know, so, so love is love, but there's such a thing as a misdirected love, and I think that's, that's, what's un, uh, that's what is, is underneath the various idolatries that I, that I deal with in, the, in this book. You know, it's not just enough to love, because if, you, if you're loving the wrong things, if you're loving maybe the right things in the wrong ways, then that's a misdirected love. Amen. Maybe we can close off with a little bit of a, prolegomena question and this is about the beginning of your chapter in the handbook okay. um, you made a distinction between political theology and you say that neo-calvinists particularly do not like that term political theology and I actually think yeah, that presupposes yeah. a doi definition of theology because now theology becomes a theoretical discipline right. it's not revelation itself it's not biblical faith and regeneration yeah. and so on and so you say it's not that theology should implicate political science or political theory, because that would be a violation of the spheres and different disciplines, but rather it's about how regeneration should make a difference, right? Um, um, so, That's right, yes. and, and you made a distinction between this understanding of theology with the older idea of the queen of the sciences, right? And, and actually, Boving held on to the queen yes, of the sciences yes. model. So, as, as neo-Calvinism is quite diverse, and there's a Dewey-Virdian definition, and there's a Bovinkian idea there, and as we're having this conversation, at least from my perspective, we are always talking about how theology leavens political theology. But but maybe I want to give you an opportunity to just give an apologetic for that Doeverdian idea of theology. I think it's a narrower definition, but some people might not know about it. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I'm not going to. You know, I think I think Doever's definition of theology is a bit quirky. I don't think I want to address that. But 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 I I will say that I I think that there are some forms of political theology where people think they can somehow build political science out of the data of scripture. I don't think you can do that. You know, so, so there, the scripture, there are some people who think, well, you know, in order to live my life, um, in order to start living, I'm going to have to read the Bible and take instruction from that. Okay, well, but that's not really the way that we relate to Scripture. That's not really the way that we, we use Scripture in real life. So, you know, from, from our birth, we are living. We're starting to live. 
uh, you know, once we start walking, then we start walking. You know, we don't give our toddler children the Bible to say, read this in order to learn how to walk. You know, we, we are living our lives. We are, we, are, we are marrying. We are having families. We are, we are working in some kind of a, of a workplace, a business or government or something like, like that. But um, in Psalm 119.105, we read, uh, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That presupposes that we are already on the path. But we need scripture to illuminate the path in front of us. And I think that's the same way with politics as well. You know, you can't build political science out of the data of Scripture. We approach political life itself in an empirical way. We build a political science or an understanding of politics from the data that's in front of us, but we are shining the light of Scripture on that to clarify our vision, to clarify our vision. And that's something that I think um, uh, political theology as a term uh, may be misleading because it may, um, it may uh, lead us to believe that somehow we can build an approach to theology out of the, uh, our, our politics out of theology or out of the data of, of scripture. And I don't Amen. think we can do so that. In my perspective, that's another way of yeah. saying that grace restores nature, right? Yeah. That's right. Could I make a, a please, plug for my do. next book? Because I think this is some of the questions that I find arising yeah, in, in, um, in, in this podcast and other, other interviews and podcasts that I've done, I'm going to try to, to um, uh, address in this next book. I signed a contract with InterVarsity Press in January. The book is practically done. I'm just putting the finishing touches on it right now. The working title of the book is Citizenship Without Illusions. The illusions in, in, um, in the title of this next book is an allusion to the illusions in the title in, in, in the first book. And what I'm trying to do, it's a kind of sequel to the first book, and I'm trying to draw out the practical implications of living the life of Christ um, in the political realm, especially within our local communities, um, recognizing the, 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 the insights of the neo-Calvinist tradition. So that's what I'm trying to do in, in this next book. Um, it's due at the publisher at the end of this year. I'm quite sure that I'll have it to them well before the end of the year. Um, I can't say exactly when it will, will come out, but my guess is probably around, around 2025. So, um, um, uh, and, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I, this is a book that I, I think will, should be helpful to people that may be reading this book and wondering, okay, this is great, but what do I do with all of this? You know, the, uh, the ideologies are idolatrous, but we're living in a society where people actually believe this stuff. How do we get along with each other, given that people do believe in different, in different ways? Um, I don't think I will have a, fi a final, um, you know, a, a definitive solution in, in this next book, but I think I'm, I'm hoping that will be helpful for people as they are living out their lives as citizenship, citizens of their respective polities. Oh, we need that book, don't we? Indeed, we look forward to reading that. Um, so, David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really great to talk with you. Um, we, we're big fans of your work and um, look forward to reading that book when it comes out. And um, hopefully listeners will also connect with your work in the TNT Clark Handbook to Neo-Calvinism. When that comes out, Gray, that's scheduled to come out, I think, by the end of this year. Okay. Yeah, either December or January this year, depending on when people come back to us with the proofreading later down the road. 
Right, right. Okay, so there's a really wonderful chapter there by David on political theology, thinking about that in the the neo-Calvinist tradition. Um, If you've enjoyed listening to this discussion, please do remember to rate the podcast. The algorithm is affected by all of that kind of stuff, and it does help other people find the podcast. Um, Please remember to subscribe if you don't do so using whichever podcast app provider you use. And if you like what we're doing and want to support the podcast, um, we also have a donor box, um, which so far we've been able to use to upgrade our audio quality. Um, So the details to that are also in the show notes. Um, But for now, thank you for joining us for this conversation. This is Grace in Common.